Oh, do I have big news. The O-Pill, just approved by the FDA, is the first oral contraceptive you're going to be able to get without a prescription or a visit to a doctor. If you've ever debated what color car to get, BMW just made that choice a lot easier. Their new iX Flow technology will allow the color to change on the fly and provide a cool car in more ways than one. And the old phrase, fill her up, gets a new meaning. Shell opens a gasless gas station in England with plans for half a million more. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nate. We're two OBGYNs who care about the environment and how it affects our patients. So in 2020, we published the first paper about climate change and pregnancy in a top medical journal. It had tables and everything. The day the paper came out, the New York Times wrote about our findings. And 10 hours later, Joe Biden tweeted at us. Then a bunch of other things happened. So now, like everybody else, we've got a podcast. Welcome to the Green Docs. In this episode, Baby Shark, the Green Docs are talking Shark Week. Now, why are two gynecologists talking about marine predators? We're going to get you all those answers in our interview with James Stewart, a marine expert from the Aquarium of the Pacific in Long Beach. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nate DiNicola, a perpetually post-call OBGYN in Southern California, and the environmental health expert for our national OBGYN society called ACOG, as well as the International OBGYN Society called FIGO. And I'm Bruce Picard, an OBGYN in San Diego and a longtime environmental and climate activist. I've been active on a number of boards and commissions uh, over the last 15 years, and I'll be talking about that a little bit more shortly. But Nate, uh, regarding your perpetual post-callness, have you gotten any sleep this week? You know, believe it or not, uh, I actually did get some sleep last night when I was on call. The babies gave me a, a short break. Uh, that may not be as evident in my speech today, but I did get a little bit of sleep last night, actually. I can uh, hear it in your voice. You're not as tired as you can, sometimes can be. Yeah. Uh, the other fun thing that happened recently was uh, I saw the Beach Boys in concert. And how was that? Were there very many original members uh, that got up there under their own power? Well, there, there were definitely a few. Uh, I mean, you could tell from their voice, it sounded like them, uh, just a, a little bit a little bit more uh, seasoned, a little more veteran. But to, to balance that out, they, uh, they brought in uh, Uncle Jesse, John Stamos, from uh, the show Full House. He's now like one of the, the, the Beach Boys, I guess, honorary Beach Boys. And he was there on stage performing with them at the Hollywood Bowl. So, uh, you know, for one, it was just really cool to see all these California songs being sung like in an iconic California setting. But then it was also kind of funny to watch John Stamos, the, I think he's 59 years old, as the young guy running around like he was like moving <laughs> equipment around the stage and he was doing drums, he was doing guitar, he sang. Uh, the, the, the guy really has some musical talent. Uh, how about you, Bruce? What have you been up to? Well, I think the thing I'm most excited about this week is that I've been involved for the past several years in, in uh, trying to get the medical community in San Diego to talk more about the connections between climate and health, and it has certainly taken hold. We have the Public Health Advisory Council here in San Diego that sends docs out to city council meetings and things like that, but they're really starting to find their voices as advocates for their patients talking about climate change. And this past week, 
uh, three of the doctors in San Diego, a pediatrician and two family practice doctors, uh, were all in the news. Uh, v. Wynn and Rachel Abbott were both interviewed on different channels uh, about the heat that we're having in San Diego and the, and the heat waves nationally. And Dr. Kristen Hampshire, a uh, family practice doctor that I've worked with, uh, did a press conference and wrote an op-ed that appeared in the San Diego Union Tribune. So uh, this is not the first time this has happened, but three in a week was pretty cool. I'm really proud of them. Very inspiring uh, update you have there. Uh, and as you like to say, the, the Green Docs doesn't just refer to our own work in, in environmental health, but the fact that there's this whole you know, sea change coming of, of up and coming doctors making this a big part of their career. I've got to ask, was, is V. Wynn that same as uh, the Dr. Plastic picker on Instagram? She's one and the same, and she tells a story to anybody who listened. V. has got more energy than a small town of 500 people. She's fantastic. But V. was getting really burned out about three or four years ago, and what ended up resuscitating her interest in medicine and just making her feel less exhausted and more inspired was that she started picking up trash on the beach in, in her spare time. She has a lovely family and a couple of kids, and sometimes they'd go with her. Sometimes she just did it on her own. But V found that really made her feel uh, a little less overwhelmed to have a small impact on the local beach where, where they live. I, I think it's Pacific Beach, it's closest one to them. But V has gone on to take over the chairmanship of the Public Health Advisory Council, and uh, V is coordinating uh, a, a heat uh, summit for hundreds of doctors in San Diego that we're going to have next month. So she is uh, an inspiring person, and she will tell you it all began with her picking up trash on the beach. Well, it sounds like we need to have her on the podcast sometime soon. I remember when we met her a few years ago at one of our national uh, society meetings, uh, I, and I got to, you know, meet her and follow her on Instagram. It is it is really just such a cool uh, handle. So again, uh, for the listeners, Doctor Plastic Picker on Instagram. You you won't regret it. Uh, so so Bruce, what did what did you make of that first headline? Uh, in addition to being able to make your your O face announcement on this podcast, uh, what what else can we take away from that that news? Well, it's huge because the two biggest barriers to preventing unplanned pregnancy are consistent use and availability. And availability is a huge part of that equation. And now to have an effective and safe birth control pill available to anybody who wants it uh, without a prescription is a huge boon. And you recall that we spoke about this in episode five, uh, Bun in a Crazy Hot Oven, about the dangerous reductions in healthcare uh, availability, just the, the lack of appointments and the lack of hospitals and things in many parts of the country, which is becoming a worsening problem. One of the things that that's going to affect, uh, kind of ironically, is it's going to probably result in more unintended pregnancies in these areas that are trying to restrict abortion. So, uh, and the other population that this is particularly important for are adolescents. Younger girls uh, are more often going to be uh, using condoms or spermicides or some other sort of easy-to-get uh, contraceptives, but they're not nearly as effective as this birth control pill. So it has been deemed safe. This is not some kind of radical, uh, out-of-the-box 
decision. It is, it is actually supported by the American Medical Association, our own American College of OBGYN, the American Academy of Family Practice. Uh, this is, I think, really going to help reduce the unintended pregnancy rate, particularly amongst adolescents. So I'm very, very happy to see this. Yeah. And just to put a really simple underline on how important this, this medication is, uh, consider all the hundreds of thousands of, of drug medications we prescribe that are available. And, and yet when you hear just the pill, you know exactly what we're talking about. You know, there's only one that's risen to that level of like, of like just instant recognition. It is the pill. Uh, and so the American College of, of Obstetrician and Gynecologists has long supported this being over-the-counter. Uh, it's great to see it's finally happening. It uh, has been called one of the greatest public health achievements of the 21st century, which uh, sounds like, you know, we, we both agree with. And, you know, it, there, there are always risks with a medication. So I know we're not doing a whole counseling session here, but but there are things like if, you know, you're over a certain age and you smoke, you have risk for blood clots if you're taking uh birth control pills. There are certain patients you'd want to counsel about it specifically, but what we always factor in with uh, birth control pills are the, the counterfactual of pregnancy. So, you know, whatever kind of increased health risk you might have or an increased estrogen you get from the pill, it would be just tremendously higher if you got pregnant and all of the health risks would be amplified significantly. So uh, definitely a step in the right direction here. Yeah, and I think importantly also they started this, the FDA started this uh, or granted this approval to what's called a mini pill. It's progestin only. And the side effect profile of that is significantly better than it is with combination pills that contain estrogen, even though, as you say, those risks are uh, often overstated. And when compared to the risks that are attendant if somebody gets pregnant, uh, way, way less. But a progestin-only birth control pill has fewer side effects. It's it's uh, more likely to be well-tolerated. It's slightly less effective, but still, if you compare it to anything else you can get without a prescription, this is by far the safest thing that people and the most effective choice that a woman can make. So uh, again, just a really positive story. Thank you, FDA. So uh, had you heard at all about the, this headline that I presented, the BMW, like almost like shape-shifting ability where with their uh, IX Flow technology, it can on the fly change colors. I have not. It's. Uh, I, I think maybe I've seen a couple of pictures of of something like this on Instagram. Maybe short videos of cars changing colors. I I have. I would associate it with BMW, but they're putting this in mass production. Well, it's it's one of their their pilot projects, so it's not it's not going to be available at your dealership, you know, next week. But but it's definitely coming, and. There is definitely a fun factor to it. Like some people just want to change the color for whatever, whatever reason. But uh, the reason I mentioned it here on the podcast is that there is an undercurrent of uh, a health implication here too, and that it makes these cars much more fuel efficient and much more energy efficient uh, for the ones that aren't even running on, on gasoline. In that, you know, if you can adapt the color of the car to hotter or cooler temperatures, you can really significantly change it's, it's efficiency. So there, there's a lot of uh, kind of secondary gains to just the, the fun dimension to it. I hadn't thought about that, but that's amazing. Can people decide what color they want based, based on their, just like the new mood ring? People will be able to change their color based upon <laughs> you know, that, you know, what they're wearing that night? That's actually how they promoted part of this was like it's a mood car kind of. Like you, you can, yes, you can change from several colors. 
I don't know how the police feel about this. You know, if you're on a, a getaway, you can suddenly change the color of your car. Uh, but uh, anyway, I thought it was a pretty, pretty cool story. Uh, and we'll, we'll see. We'll see how widespread it gets. One Adam 12, one Adam 12, blue Toyota. Wait, wait, wait. It's a BMW. No, it's not blue. It's yellow. Wait, it's red. Uh, I think I better pull over and get another donut. <laughs> Although, really, if you think about it, a, a car changing colors quickly would be very easy to identify in a way. So I guess <laughs> maybe it could actually be more. You've thought this through. I think that's kind of scary, but okay, good. Well, I think it'll be, you thought it through. It'll be clear to the listeners later on that this was really on the fly. Uh, <laughs> it was not well thought through. But anyway, we'll, we'll see where that, that goes. Now, just to kind of set this up, we, we did start a new thing recently where we um, have a surprise headline each of us. So the other does not know what we're going to announce. Uh, and we both picked car stories this episode. That's kind of interesting. Tell me about your uh, news about Shell and England. Yeah, I actually picked it not because it was cars, but because it's a positive story. And you know how much I like to talk about solutions and things that we can look forward to. I found another headline that was not nearly so uh, positive. But this is a story about a filling station that's opened up uh, in uh, outside of London that is used to be a gas station that has no more gas pumps in it. But what it has are electric vehicle chargers that are powered by solar. And uh, these are going to be ultra-fast chargers, which charge the cars there in 30 to 40 minutes instead of perhaps a longer time with a slower charger. But they're also redesigning the whole experience, knowing people will be staying for more than five minutes. So they're having more options in terms of food inside the store, comfortable lounges for people to sit in. Uh, they're going to be more luxurious. And then I think the best part of the story was the news that Shell is actually planning on rolling out half a million of these conversions in England and the U.S. by 2025, so in the next couple of years. And I had coincidentally just been listening to an episode of Pivot with Kara Swisher, uh, another one of my favorite podcasts, and she was talking about how all gas stations are going to go the way of EV charging uh, before long. So this apparently uh, is a sign of that. And uh, again, I think it's, it's a positive in many ways. So do you think this will become like the new coffee shop? It is sort of a... Uh, you know, it's it's a, a melding of, of uh, a couple of things based upon the fact that filling up will take a little bit longer than we're used to. It'll take a lot less time than people are afraid it will. But it opens up the opportunity maybe to capture those people that might go sit at Denny's for for half an hour to an hour, uh, that they'll be able to do that while they're filling up their car. And they can also get their car washed simultaneously while it's charging. So... Uh, yeah, we're seeing a change in society that's based upon the increasing uptake of electric cars, and a lot of things about it are positives. Well, I have long been looking for an alternative to Starbucks, so this would be very appealing if we could power up and get a spot of tea, it sounds like at first, uh, and then who knows what, what America will, will deep fry that in. <laughs> yes. All right, we'll be right back with our interview. So welcome back. Now, again, you may be wondering why two OBGYNs are doing an episode on Shark Week, but we're hoping to walk you through the exact connection and why we have the exact right person to be talking to uh, this episode about ocean health and how it relates to 
things we eat, things we drink, and things that really affect everybody's uh, overall overall state of health. So to get us through this uh, perhaps labored connection, we are delighted to talk to James Stewart. He's a marine expert at the Aquarium of the Pacific uh, here in California in Long Beach. Uh, so James, welcome to the Green Docs. Thank you for the invite. I'm glad we get to talk to everybody today. Well, thank you. I'm sure you do lots of these uh, podcasts with gynecologists all the time, but this is a first for us. So it's really good to have you. Thanks for showing up. Yeah, James, I have to tell you, on a personal note, uh, part of this is fulfilling kind of just childhood uh, fantasies. Whenever somebody would ask you as a kid, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? My answer was always a marine biologist or, you know, somebody who works in ocean oceans. Uh, Jacques Cousteau made a strong impression on me. Oh, yeah. I have some of my own marine heroes. Um, Jacques Cousteau is a big one. Uh, Dr. Celia Earle's another one, but also people like Jane Goodall. Um, Bill Nye is also a personal favorite of mine, too. So like anybody that got me interested in science is a big hero, and I hope that we can help fulfill some of that for your listeners. Interesting. Neither one of you mentioned George Costanza on that episode of Seinfeld, where he was a marine biologist and pulled that was it Kramer that pulled the golf ball out of the whale's spout? I don't remember the details. But anyway, yes, uh, I have to ask, what? so I understand those people were inspiring to you, but do you remember the moment where you decided, this is what I'm going to make my life's work? I was actually in high school, and I had the uh, amazing privilege to go on a trip to Hawaii for a school-funded uh, project where we got to do two weeks doing snorkeling, volcanology, um, analyzing the reef through observations. And I grew up in Colorado and that wasn't a thing that I ever had a chance to do. And that was what really solidified the ocean is, is my big home. I really had a lot of fond memories of that. It imprinted so much that it's a beautiful space that we have to work to learn more about and protect. And why whales in particular? That one was more of a happenstance. I, I didn't originally study whales in college. I have a, a degree in biology, but it was not towards cetaceans or other specific animals. And I had an opportunity to take over our whale watch program here at the Aquarium of the Pacific. And my face lit up. I was just so excited because it's like, that's, that's such an amazing opportunity and so many interesting things that we can connect people to nature with whales. And you get to go out on the water quite often and go follow whales around, right? Yeah, I go out. I train a lot of our staff to to be naturalists out there. We also have a photo ID program, so I help uh, other young folks get the opportunity to study how we collect data on whales and start to learn that process of how do we know which whale is which and how do we learn more about the populations and when they're feeding and a lot that they can do in just a two-hour whale watch. So, James, I know we've used Shark Week as the hook for this episode, but uh, do you feel like <laughs> whales are being sold short a little bit? Should we have a whale week also? I mean, I'm looking at, at headline news about, I know they're slightly different species, but like the orcas off the Iberian Peninsula attacking uh, fishermen boats. And it seems like every kayaker in uh, TikTok has a whale sighting and it seems very inspiring. So, so uh, do whales need their due? Oh, I mean, I'm biased. I'm in charge of a whale program, so I would say 100% yes. Uh, they, the sharks are a beautiful animal. They are heavily threatened or endangered, but whales are such a charismatic animal that needs our love and our attention, too. Just to follow up real quickly on this, because we brought it up, and it's just a, a hot topic. There's nothing, I don't think, connecting to 
our uh, our patient's health. But do you have any any take on on what the orcas are doing off the coast of Spain and Portugal? I have been keeping track of what the popular media has been saying and what some of the scientists are saying. And uh, from my experience, I agree with a lot of the scientists that are saying that it's more of a play behavior that they're not really intending to sink boats. I don't know how much they have this sense of I should sink a boat. Um, but we, there is a whale uh, orca in our west coast that I've seen whose, whose name is Bumper. When he was younger, the people in the, in the small like inflatable craft that would out, go out to observe him, he'd hip check a boat just to kind of say hi. So like touch and rubbing against things is part of their play. And, you know, when you have a 20 to 30 foot whale that's many tons, they, they sometimes can crack things open like a boat. So their, their size is very impressive, but they, they do like to hit, run into things, bump into things to say hello. Yeah, when I was... Um dating a while back. I remember that was sort of my approach at, at times, but that's another episode. <laughs> well, <laughs> wasn't always appreciated then either, but like very, I say, very school that's yard another topic. You hit the person <laughs> that you like. <laughs> well, since Bruce brought it up, uh, playing in the water is something that, you know, humans like to do also. Uh, one of the things that Bruce and I learned early on was we both love uh, to go surfing and body surfing and especially during the summertime, and obviously here in California, it's it's just a, a huge part of, of our life here is, is being in the ocean. Uh, so it really is saddening when we have to constantly talk about these headlines about, you know, just the shores being awash with so much trash and microplastics in the water supply that otherwise would look so clean. So uh, we want to ask a little bit about, you know, kind of from your marine expert standpoint, what, what's the main message on microplastics in the ocean and uh, how, kind of how does that impact your, your work? Uh, we see a lot of debris in the water on whale watches, especially during parts of the season where it's the graduation season. We see lots of balloons in the water. Uh, the mylar metallic balloons, those are out there a lot. It's something that it's unfortunate to see, but it gives us that immediate talking point of we wouldn't like to go out in this environment, but this is their home. And we, as the people that are stewards of this planet, we want to be able to clean this space up so that they have a healthy home, just like we would want a healthy home. Um, the plastics are, are definitely a problem. And when people started using plastic in the way we did, I don't think this forethought kind of came about of how, how much the effect of plastic can have on our environment around us. It was a fantastic new technology and we could do so much with it, but you know, getting it into the environment, I don't think they saw what that was going to be like. So when you identify trash out in the ocean and you're out with, with your citizen scientists, you use it as a teachable moment, essentially, to make the point that what we're doing on land is definitely affecting not just us, but also all the sea creatures that we admire and depend upon. Oh, 100%. Uh, even anybody that lives in the center of the country or the continent, we're all connected to the ocean in some way. I mean, the very basic part of most of the oxygen on the planet comes from the ocean. Two out of every three breaths of air you take have probably been produced by ocean algae. So we need that ocean to do so much for us. So even if you're far inland, you need the oxygen, the clouds and weather really are dependent on our ocean's health and our ocean's temperatures. So we're all connected. That's an incredible statement. I have not heard that before, but two out of every three breaths are from oxygen created by the oceans. I bet you very few people know that outside of your world. 
And uh, it is one of the recurring themes throughout our podcast is how everything is literally connected to everything else. And since 70% of the Earth's surface is oceans, is water, uh, it makes sense to, to bring this message home and remind people. I mean, one of the things that I learned from Al Gore back during uh, when I went to the climate reality training was that uh, so much of uh, what we do every day has impacts that we'll never see. So your work is all about making those connections. Do you have, I don't want to get too far afield, but I'm fascinated. Do you have whales that you see on a regular basis? Do you get, do you develop relationships with these individual animals out there? I don't know about relationships, but there are some individuals that we recognize. Um, we actually, our photo ID program just identified a blue whale that was first recorded by researchers or yeah, I think it was first recorded by researchers in 1997. And that's their photo that we used to identify the individual. And that was just an amazing you know, thing in the office. We were all kind of cheering and happy that we made this connection. We made this, this find that we saw a whale 27 years later. Uh, there's a humpback whale that we regularly see every summer, uh, nicknamed Chief. And it has these two funny little scars on the underside of its tail that look like we glued googly eyes to this animal. But they're barnacle scars. <laughs> Actually, my boss at the time thought I had photoshopped the picture. She, she did not believe that that was the actual picture of the, of the whale's tail. And I was like, no, why would I do that? This is amazing. Look at, look at googly eyes. Um, but th this whale named Chief, we see him year after year. And we recognize his dive patterns, his behavior. He's very friendly with boats. So a lot of the whales that recognize that a, a boat is a boat and that we keep our distance and they just kind of play and look at us or have some fun around us. Um, they, they do get to kind of learn stuff from us and us from them. James, is there a place to see a picture of Chief and his googly eyes? I There's actually a, a researcher that we partner with sometimes here at the Aquarium of the Pacific. Uh, Ted Cheeseman has a website called Happy Whale. And... Community scientists, if they go out, they get to take pictures of whales, they can upload these geotagged photos to that website and it'll try to identify the humpbacks. The other species, they don't have the AI software yet to help identify the individuals. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of resources out there with partnering researchers. We put uh, pictures of the whales on our website and on blogs that we used to run. So there's a lot of media out there that if you want to look them up, you can. Now, you talked a bit about the algae and its importance in generating oxygen for us all to breathe. Uh, a really interesting story that I read about uh, the seagrass meadows and the connection of them to tiger sharks. And this was, again, something I'd never understood, but it makes all kinds of sense that when those tiger shark populations uh, are reduced substantially, then the behavior of all the fish that they prey on changes and it can seriously affect the seagrass, which is also another really, really critical carbon sink. And since we are uh, aware that over 90% of the warming and the CO2 that's been created by this climate crisis we have has gone into the ocean, uh, these, these connections and these delicate balances are even more important than they've ever been. Oh, 100%. There's so many things that unless you read the study, took the science class, you may not realize the connection. That substrate, the seagrasses, the eelgrasses that are out there that maintain a habitat, a hiding space, place for fish to lay eggs and take care of their young until they swim off. Uh, one I learned about was also here locally in California, 
Seagrasses are important for red algae reproduction. The little spores that would grow into a new red algae body, they kind of have a shape where they hook onto the grass and they need the grasses in the areas in order for that spore to grab on and eventually settle down to the seafloor so it can start growing. So there's so many connections, even at the microscopic level that we might not be aware of until we take a closer look. Now, with, with Shark Week upon us, we do want to talk a little bit about that as well, because uh, I, I think anybody who's familiar with the topic maybe can think of the shark breaching, attacking a you know toy seal, or they've seen the cage diving where the jaws is literally coming, you know, biting through. But one of the undercurrent messages, I think, has been that, you know, shark populations are vulnerable and it relates to ocean health, which you've connected the dots very clearly that you know, connect the, directly connects to the air we breathe. Um, is, is there, because I've seen similar stories, is there a connection between kind of the shark population and other really big important things in ocean health? Like I saw the Great Barrier Reef used to be the largest living thing and now was declared dead. Is that right? There's been a lot of stuff happening with the reef, a lot of research on it. There's some sections that I think researchers are considering in a regrowth phase, but there's so much connected between all the different sea life. and. Sharks are a major influence on our oceans. They're really uh, kind of like a temperature check on how the health is going. When there's a lot of sharks in a reef system or an open ocean habitats where they're supposed to be, that's good. They clean out the fish that are, you know, it's like any land predator. You think of like wolves taking deer from a population. It increases the health of deer. When sharks are eating the fish or the crustaceans or other things that are in their diet, it helps clean up the areas It keeps the other populations in check and sharks are an, an interesting thing that we need to have around and when you see reefs starting to become unhealthy all it's just like the eelgrass and the seagrasses if that substrate if that base level is not healthy those fish no longer have that home and then that food for that animal isn't really around as much or not in as high a volume and then the whole ecosystem is out of balance and so one of the impacts, in addition, we were talking about the changes to the climate is all of this CO2 that's been absorbed by the oceans. And there's a very simple chemical equation that basically just tells you that what happens with the absorption of CO2 and combining with water is you get an acid formation. So the ocean is becoming increasingly acidic, which in addition to all these other things we're talking about, uh, throws off the balance uh, that's necessary for uh, certain types of ocean life and coral are amongst them, that they are very, very sensitive to the changes in acid levels or pH. Yeah, the, the term is ocean acidification, which you may have shared with people before, and it makes it really tough for these animals to grow their skeleton or their shell so that they might still be alive, but maybe their shell doesn't get as thick, or maybe they don't have as many opportunities to grow as large because they can't molt and shed that layer when that animal is getting too big for the shell it's in. So ocean acidification, that increased CO2 is, is going to change things slowly but surely, but we'll see a cumulative effect as we keep going along. And I also saw an article this past week about just shockingly high ocean temperatures off the coast of Florida, 94 degrees, which is six or eight degrees warmer than it normally is. Uh, that's got to be very hard on a lot of ocean life as well. Just like us, animals in the ocean have a temperature range that they are best fit for. And uh, years ago, I saw a study where, because of that warming in the Gulf around, Me around uh, yeah, Gulf around Mexico, all the way around to Florida, 
there's been northern migration of some of the seafloor species. So things like the clams, the mussels, the little creepy crawlies on the ground, they're slowly creeping north because the temperatures have been lower enough, higher latitudes. And there's, it was a, a long-term study, but they're starting to see a lot of movement north of some of these seafloor animals. And they've seen the same things with, if you talk about climate change temperature on land, there's tree species that are moving north, but they can't move as fast as the animals do. So the, the land animals might have a little bit different challenge or you know adversity to try to adapt to this system than some of the sea animals might. So at, in, in your role at the aquarium, how much of uh, this message on, you know, just kind of ocean health connecting to the climate change, how much of that is part of your, your daily work? Like what, what are people going to be uh, able to learn when they go to the aquarium uh, and, and interact with your department? We actually have all of our uh, science interpretation staff practicing climate change messaging. What are the best analogies and metaphors to provide to our, our audiences so that they can understand this material so that we can reach the widest audience possible, people with any background, multiple age levels, so that they can understand what's really happening in the environment and connect them to the animals that we have here. And we have a tropical reef habitat that's uh, it's our biggest space. It's 350,000 gallons. It's one of my favorite places here. And that shows specifically, we talk about climate change on coral reefs. So it's part of one of our daily presentations so that we can share with our, our audiences, not just what's happening, but solutions that they can participate in. We don't want this the doom and gloom. We want to show people that there is a goal, there is a plan that we as our ocean stewards can take to help ensure our ocean health. And it was reassuring. It was sort of the silver lining to the cloud of the COVID pandemic, how the oceans seemed to rebound once we stopped polluting and driving and flying and doing all kinds of other uh, burning of fossil fuels. Were you, were you personally uh, able to observe any changes during the, the quiet days of the pandemic? Not quite the same way that, uh, you know, they saw dolphins in uh, waterways that hadn't been seen in decades. But we did see less pollution in the Los Angeles uh, area. We saw the animals were behaving a little differently in the ocean because of initially some lack of shipping noise so the the noise pollution in the ocean for the whales was something that initially there was a, a, a dip in the amount of noise but then the effect of the long beach and los angeles ports being so backed up so many container ships were just parked out in the water and they have to have their engines running otherwise there's no power on the boat that is a lot of noise in the water when there's 40 50 60 ships waiting to dock and for a little while we saw a lot of the animals really keep their distance from Long Beach because of a lot, we assumed a lot of ocean noise. And because that was a change, that many more ships just sitting there, that was the correlation we saw. And our conclusion we were coming to with our observations was that there had to have been an effect with the number of ships that we saw just waiting. So it wasn't just the humans uh, being aggravated by that giant backlog. Uh, the, the whale. <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting, James. Just last episode, uh, we were talking about uh, a headline, how noise pollution is, is really a major environmental concern for, for human health. And uh, that, that's so interesting that the whales, I mean, of course, it makes sense, I guess. They rely on echolocation and sonar to such a high degree that noises would, would be disruptive to them, too. Uh, well, so it sounds like we, we need a, a trip to the aquarium coming up to, to see your, uh, your coral reef exhibit. 
you mentioned solutions, which I was really happy to hear about. What are some of the, the solutions or work on uh, ocean conservation that you're excited about? Uh, we have a lot of projects that we do here to try and rebalance the ecosystem, reintroduce some species back into the water. One of the animals that we do a lot of work on is the white abalone. And you know, it might seem like this snail is not so charismatic, not so interesting, but they're a really important part of our kelp forest habitat. And the Aquarium of the Pacific, in partner with a lot of other institutions, are breeding white abalone, and then we take the reproductive cells and try to create an embryo that can be grown in the lab and safely released back into the environment after a few years. They grow very slow, so if you think of like the length of your thumb, that might be a three to four year old abalone. It takes a while to grow them up enough. And we actually tested in one of our exhibits uh, a predator exclusion cage. So it's kind of like the dive cage that divers go in where they keep the sharks out. Well, one of the things that eats baby or juvenile abalone are lobsters. And if they stay, if we just release them when they're about an inch or two inches long, there's gonna be a lot of predation on the all those abalone we released. So we created this cage-like device where they could crawl in and out as they wanted to. We shoved a ton of seaweed in it, so they had lots of food to coincide and stay with. And as soon as they were big enough and felt safe enough, they could go out on their own. And that's just one animal that we work on. Our photo ID program is working with scientists who monitor and document sightings so that they can study population dynamics. We've participated in giant sea bass release with the Cabrillo Marine Aquarium and a couple other institutions as well. Uh, housing and rearing them until they're big enough to be released. They're an endangered fish in our local waters. We have had scientists and uh, animal caretakers go to uh, the island of Guam to learn how to capture and collect coral reproductive cells in the water during coral spawning season. So we can participate in, in coral reproduction as well. And we've actually done some studies in our own spaces behind the scenes to figure out what's one of the fastest ways we can get coral to grow in a lab setting and then help take that information, give it to the scientists. So if they want to do the same thing, they can use our methods if they want to. We do studies on some of our sharks and reproductive potential. How many eggs can they make in a single season? There's a lot that we can do at an aquarium with our own animals just to see what they do in a safe space here. Take that science, give it to the people out in the field. And if they use it and combine it with their own research, we could have a really strong effect on bringing all these species back to a healthy level. You know, I, speaking of solutions, uh, I live in Del Mar, and we apparently have one of the two biggest colonies of, of juvenile great white sharks right off the beach here for the last couple of years. Uh, can you give us any solutions for how we can 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 get you know nudge them to go north or south a bit? Because two or three years is enough to keep seeing those fins and keep hearing my fellow surfers come in and complaining about how they just saw an eight footer right before they took off. So, uh, uh, well, I figured it's got something to do with their food, right? They like, uh, they like the, the stingrays that are around here. It, I mean, everybody loves Southern California, I guess, even the sharks. There's <laughs> the, Southern California is supposed to be a white shark nursery. So the fact that we see them as much as, you know, it might stop some recreation that they're there or if they're there, then that means that, that space is healthy for them, that they're having babies. Uh, the boats around the island of Catalina have seen, I think about an 18 to 20 foot large female. 
So they, they're here. They're supposed to be having babies here. I don't know if we can uh, incentivize them to move n north or south of you. But, I mean, me as an, a scientist and ecologist, to me, I'm like, yes, that means they're doing well. As a surfer, you're like, ah, oh, but that just killed my morning. So, James, <laughs> as, as an obstetrician, I have to ask this follow-up question uh, because I, I also love, you know, the, the ocean and, and the Baja California area. And I've, I've seen stories about these, these shark nurseries. Is it true that we have yet to see a shark be born in, in, in the wild or, or anywhere? I can't guarantee never, but it also depends on the species. For white sharks, their their breeding grounds are also way offshore. Here in the Pacific Ocean, there's an area called the White Shark Cafe, and it's like an area almost the size of Texas. I think it's like 200 miles offshore. And scientists didn't even know what all the sharks were doing there. In the last few years, they've been studying a lot of what they were doing, sending down uh, automated machines to record them trying to tag sharks and monitor what was going on. And one of the cool things that they discovered was that the different uh, sexes actually hang out in different depths until they mix together so that they can try and mate. And that was a brand new discovery within the last five years. That was really interesting for us to learn here at the aquarium. Uh, but in terms of like never seeing one, it might be rare for some of the big sharks for us to see one born. Um, but the cool thing is sharks also lay eggs. so. If you're snorkeling or diving in certain areas, you might find a shark egg. And if you watch it long enough, it could take a few months. So I hope you go back up for air soon. Uh, <laughs> they will hatch. You get to see them hatch. We, we actually have had sharks born and hatch here. And that's uh, awesome that we get to see that. But out in the ocean, it's a pretty rare thing because they're pretty secretive about their mating spaces where they rear their babies or even how much they brood their children. There's so much more for us to learn on that. Well, they're an amazingly complex and, and long-lived uh, species. This particular category I read uh, of cartilaginous fish is 450 million years old compared to Homo sapiens. We've been around about 300,000 years. So they've had a, a bit of time uh, compared to almost any living creature on Earth to, to uh, figure out how to how to perpetuate themselves and and assure their safe reproduction. It's just good they don't need an obstetrician because I don't know that Nate or I would volunteer for that job. <laughs> I don't know, but it's easy to get in the water. Isn't that kind of helpful? <laughs> yeah, we, that is a water birth. We, we have uh, tongue-in-cheek named this episode Baby Shark, but uh, not with the desire to actually perform the, the delivery. <laughs> Uh, thank you for that. We get to hear it with so many of our, our camp kids every year. We hear kids walk down the hall singing it. <laughs> so, James, it's been so great having you. And I, I, I'm personally always inspired by someone that takes the route that you have in your career to, to pursue these connections we have to the rest of life on Earth and then to use that, that information and your curiosity to help expand people's awareness of how connected we all are not only to each other, but also to every living thing on earth. So uh, I think we owe you a great debt. And uh, is there anything else that you would like to share with the seven or eight people that listen to our podcast regularly about uh, about where things are headed in the ocean and, and ways that they can, can help make it better? Sure, I mean, we all have an effect and conservation and the efforts that we all make 
don't have to all be perfect every time. If we all behave imperfectly to protect our oceans, we'll have a cumulative positive effect. So in general, if you can burn less fossil fuels, drive cars less, use less power, you release less carbon dioxide, which means we're you know, reducing the amount of the atmosphere. The less gets in the ocean, changes our ocean temperature. Uh, using products that are more reusable. And if you have to use a single use plastic, you know, make sure it ends up in the right receptacle because that's half the battle. Sometimes you have to do that. You know, we have a lot of folks that they have to pack food for themselves for, for a trip, a journey, a day camp, school. And you don't always have the option to not use something that might end up in a landfill sometimes. But the more often that you can avoid that, the times that you, you do have to, you know, that's not the same effect as using a, you know, a single use plastic all the time or a throwaway water bottle all the time. But if you reduce that effect overall, you can have a, a positive effect on our oceans and help us all out by keeping our oceans healthy. Well, a, a positive message to end on. And I, I promised Bruce there would be a tie-in to talking to a marine expert in our field. And I feel like you just echoed everything we've uh, been trying to share in our podcast as well. So thanks for bringing it home, James. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on today. Thanks so much for your time today and for what you're doing. I appreciate it. Come visit us at the Aquarium of the Pacific in Long Beach. We'll show you that tropical reef habitat. We're going to make a field trip, I promise. <laughs> Thanks. Take care. You too. Well, I'm sure you had your doubts that we were going to connect Shark Week to OBGYN and women's health. You can decide if we did it. I, uh, I feel pretty good about how the interview went. And uh, really, really delighted to have James echo so many points that we like to talk about. And uh, just to bullet point those real quick, uh, you know, he, he talked about how in his career and his work, single-use plastics are also a problem. So let's decrease those as much as possible, both for the, the whales as well as the you know, overall ocean health and then for what gets back to us in our diet. Uh, be mindful of these uh, alternatives to uh, fossil fuel economies. Uh, we talked about it in some of our opening stories, uh, you know, kind of unbeknownst to each of us, we picked stories about how the uh, automotive industry is shifting more toward renewables. And there's a lot of other ways to do that. Uh, and then a bit of beach health uh, to, to kind of recap here. Also, people are going to be looking for all kinds of ways to stay healthy out there um, in the sun. And so sunscreen is still advised for anybody who's pregnant or looking at getting pregnant um, or looking at sunscreen choices for kids. The, the easiest thing to look for in the label would be parabens free. And this will help reduce the amount of uh, hormone disrupting chemicals that are in that and that, and that get into the skin. And the, the message that I think ties this episode to all the others is how much everything is connected to our health and also to the state of nature and the health of nature, what we call our climate. Uh, as far as what you can do as a member of your community, if you're concerned about the health of the oceans, all these things factor in. Uh, you can certainly lend your support in whatever way you can to nonprofits that are working to protect our oceans and our coasts. Uh, Surfrider Foundation, groups like Four Ocean, you may find that your local Sierra Club actually works on ocean health. So be willing to check around and see what resonates with you. But any kind of contribution you can make in that way is something that will help the oceans and help us all. 
And if you are tired of hearing about how we are having one heat wave after another, and now you just heard that the ocean temperature in Florida is 94 or 96 degrees, which is crazy. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, these are all things that we can't fix overnight, but certainly the more rapidly we move to renewable energy and get off of fossil fuels, the less heat gets trapped in our atmosphere and therefore the less heat and acid gets pumped into our oceans. So there are ways that we can participate in these solutions and I think it'll make us feel better to do that. And I just personally want to say that as someone who's been uh, trying to ride a surfboard successfully since I was about 14 years old, uh, I think surfing still has a ways to go in terms of its environmental footprint and they're getting to be more and more great choices we can make in that uh, regard. The company Patagonia you've probably heard of has pretty much perfected a non-petroleum rubber called Ulex, which is made from plants. I believe it comes from uh, someplace in Central America, but it performs equally as good as neoprene, but it doesn't, it's not made with oil. And I've been using their Ulex wetsuits for three or four years now, and they work terrifically. Uh, surfboards can be made out of more environmentally friendly materials as opposed to the petroleum products that are typically used. Uh, and foam and fiberglass and things like that. So we're getting more options, but I think surfing certainly is a place where we should be standing up for, since we're there because of our love of the ocean, we should be, uh, we should be walking the walk or surfing the surf and, uh, and, and demonstrating our values uh, as we enjoy the ocean that way. Yeah, a very eco-friendly way to hang 10. Well, for, uh, we'd like to close with uh, Obstetrics 2.0 or Obstetrics Plus, which is a, often a way of kind of looking ahead and modernizing uh, the way we provide care. Uh, but I, I really am looking kind of more of a back to the future here and reminded that our, our regional experience with environmental health intersecting with pregnancy health came from, from the ocean, uh, came from the experience with Minamata Bay in Japan, where industrial waste spillage was was bioaccumulating in the bay and, and getting into the food supply. And ultimately, children were dying from mercury poisoning. And it was found that pregnancies were also uh, seriously affected by all that mercury that was being consumed from the seafood that got there initially from the uh, industrial waste spillage. And so we're kind of seeing a, another version of that occurring now with plastic. I don't think it's too much to say that, that plastic is kind of the new mercury when it comes to ocean health connecting to pregnancy health. Uh, we can't help but notice our last two guests, uh, James Stewart today, a uh, marine expert who works in an aquarium, and Brittany Barreto, uh, a femtech expert, both ended up talking to us about the burden of plastic, whether it's uh, the plastic that they see getting into the ocean uh, with their study of marine life, or in Brittany Barreto's case, uh, showing us you know, the, the environmental footprint of of plastic in feminine care products, tampons and pads, and how that is a major cause of landfill uh, pollution, and some very cool techie solutions that, that we have uh, you know, alternatives now. And so the, the final push would be to recognize that ocean health and pregnancy health are uh, go hand in hand, and uh, Shark Week is a really fun time to uh, kind of just remind ourselves of that connection. Sharks are our friends, although we certainly don't want to meet them in, uh, in the wrong circumstances, but we definitely need them as we need all of those creatures that create the balance of life on Earth. And as far as getting rid of plastics, I just want to make sure we're not coming across as being holier than thou. You can't eliminate plastics 100% from your life, 
But uh, as we like to say, we're not here to recommend perfection, but just to hope that you'll move in the right direction as we move away from these products that have so many downsides to them, uh, to alternatives that are really better for all of us uh, and our children. That was a really so, cool message that James ended on, by the way, that you know we, we don't need to be perfect. If, if all of us were imperfect on this, we'd still be making progress. So yeah, cool way to wrap it up. Great. How about a drink? You feel like a mocktail? Yeah, let's do it. What, what, what do you have today? Well, I'm kind of keying off your uh, point that you made with our last episode, which was that a lot of times I think these alcohol substitutes are really good for uh, for making some kind of a mix, some some kind of a combination drink, maybe as opposed to just having them on their own. So there it is. I'm opening up another Desois Purple Loon, uh, which is a sort of a fruity, icy beverage, but I'm I'm using, uh, I'm modifying one of their recipes that's called a peachy keen. So I've added a, a bit of purple loon to ice and a sprig of basil and a slice of peach and a slice of plum. Because, oh, by the way, those <laughs> fruits are going bad in my fruit bowl kind of fast. <laughs> this makes much more sense now. <laughs> you put a lot of thought into this cocktail, but now it makes perfect sense. You gotta, put a lot of fruit into it, too. <laughs> you got a purple stuff, purple stuff cocktail. Well, I kind of went the opposite. What are you having? Yeah, I went the opposite direction. I went uh, with I have a pre-mixed one from a company called Liars, which I thought was a very appropriate name for somebody selling me a mocktail. You know, like mm-hmm. what, what kind of what kind of alcohol am I really getting? Uh, but yeah, it's, I think it's called Liars. L Y R E apostrophe S. This is their uh, dark and spicy. It's like a ginger lime mix. And uh, let's let's give it a taste. I have to tell you this, this purple people eater here, this this combo mocktail that I've made, is is significantly better. You are absolutely right. This is better than it was straight up. Having it over ice and with a little bit of fruit and a little bit of basil, it's got all kinds of flavors zipping in and out, and it's very refreshing on a warm summer afternoon. How about yours? Yeah, I'm starting to see that there are kind of. I don't know. It seems like at least two categories to these mocktails. One are like what you're doing. You've got a base, and then you you dress it up yourself in a in a making a cocktail just minus the the spirit. The other is in these pre-made ones that to me really taste more like cola than anything else. Uh, but that's not a bad thing. Uh, the, some of these like old-fashioned. Think about like a, a, a true sarsaparilla or a, you know like a um, cream soda. Those really old-fashioned colas, they're pretty good. That, that's what this one tastes like, this dark and spicy. Uh, not a bad option at all if you were trying to, yeah, just feel like you're taste, drinking something a little more fun, a little more elevated, and definitely a better alternative than like maybe uh, ordering your, your 10th Shirley Temple. Yeah, I really like mine. This is perfect for a summer afternoon. Well, speaking of perfect for a summer afternoon... We have even more episodes about summer coming up uh, on the Green Docs, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your listing content. Also, stop by our website, greendocspodcast.com, where you can check out our show notes and links, and be sure to send us uh, comments and submit questions, and we'd love to answer those on air. This episode of Green Docs was created by Bruce Picard and Nate Dinacola and produced by John Beathan of ImaginePodcasting.com. 
Again, check out our website, greendocspodcast.com, all one word. You can like, subscribe, and tell your friends about it, whether you're on the beach or on the lake or anywhere.